Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Fed Speak, Central Banking's new podcast series, taking a deep dive into the workings of the Federal Reserve. My name is William Towning. Throughout the series, I'll be taking you on a trip across the 12 reserve banks to discuss some of the projects or developments underway in each region. Today, I'll be talking with someone who is responsible for leading a fascinating research department at the Atlanta Fed, which has started in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, just as the storms were starting to part. The Center for Financial Innovation and Stability aims to improve the knowledge of how financial sector um, innovation and changes to the regulatory landscape shape the stability of the US financial sector. Our guest, Larry Wall, Executive Director of the Centre will share some of the, the Centre's work on um, fintech, stable coins, dollar dominance and potentially if we get some time on the, the forthcoming financial accounting requirement changes in the US. Welcome Larry, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me William, it's great to be here. You're welcome. Um, and just a, a caveat, in the spirit of keeping calm and carrying on, Larry has taken this call from home. So um, as a, the Atlanta Fed has taken all the necessary precautions to, to keep its staff safe um, from the spread of the coronavirus, so hopefully the sound quality and, and the line hold up. Um, but I guess to start, perhaps, Larry, it would be, be helpful to have a little bit more of an introduction of, of what the centre does and, and what you've been up to over the last um, few years. I believe you, you, you took charge in, in 2013, right? Yes, I did. Um, let me start with a little bit of an admission. The term center suggests that I have a number of people working for me. Uh-huh. In fact, the center itself is a rather small operation with just me. However, it works with a number of my colleagues in the Atlanta Fed Research Department, especially those in the finance group. As the title suggests, the center seeks to promote research and policy work related to the topics of financial innovation and financial stability. Prior to my taking over, it had been quite rightly focused on the developments during the global financial crisis and the subsequent European sovereign debt crisis. But by the time I took over, both of those were largely in our rearview mirror. However, the efforts to strengthen prudential regulation to reduce the risk of future crises were still ongoing. Given my background working on a variety of prudential and safety net issues, this was an area where I thought the center could contribute. So some of the specific topics we addressed were regulatory policies related to bank capital and liquidity, too big to fail, and shadow banks. However, as we move through the 2010s, policy decisions were being reached on many, though not all, of these prudential issues. Moreover, it became increasingly clear that developments in financial technology were having a significant impact on the financial system and that that impact was likely to grow through time. As a result, most of the efforts of the center have switched to fintech-related issues, including blockchains and crypto assets, data availability and privacy, machine learning, and the impact of fintech on financial inclusion. However, the center continues to produce short research pieces and conference sessions on prudential topics such as incentive compensation for bankers. Okay, that's yeah, that's super interesting. And I guess the first thing that, that comes to my mind when you mention financial innovation and, and stability is, is stable coins and, and potentially what these these might mean for our for our financial system. So is this something that the, the, the center's been looking into that you've been looking into and I guess should we be should we be worried? Uh, well, we think stablecoins in general and Libra in particular are very interesting topics. Indeed, one of the participants in a panel on 
uh, digital currency at the upcoming Atlanta Fed's Financial Markets Conference will be the co-creator of Libra, Christian Catalini. That said, I have given some thought to stable coins and would be happy to share that subject to the... yeah, okay. With the understanding, of course, that uh, once I hear that digital currency panel, my, some of my views may change. <laughs> yes, that's okay. Yeah, please, please share. Uh, so with regards to the issue of uh, cross-border payments, I think it is important that we understand that the cost and speed issues associated with the current system are not entirely due to outdated cross-border bank payment systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some of the impediments, such as the difficulty with complying with the rules on anti-money laundering and counter-terror financing, will not go away even if the cross-border transactions move to stablecoins. Additionally, I'm not sure how much stablecoins will actually reduce the cost of wholesale payments. But let's suppose that Libra or some other stablecoin does result in a substantial reduction in the cost and speed of making retail cross-border payments. It's easy to see how this will help migrant workers and tourists, but the effects potentially go far beyond these groups. For example, an increase in ease of making cross-border payments could also substantially reduce the cost of retail cross-border purchases, especially purchases of online services. This could have a variety of implications, not just for consumers, but also for the providers of these services, Mm. uh, both the incumbents and the potential entrants. Second possibility is it could make it easier for retail investors to move funds outside their country. The result could be that the investment flows become more sensitive to changes in risks and returns around the globe. A third is, is that there's an increased possibility of countries becoming effectively dollarized, that is, having a stable coin tied to the U.S. dollar or some other currency, such as the euro, replacing the local currency. This is a concern that's been expressed by many people, and I have to agree with them. Again, this isn't a new risk, but it is one that may become relevant to many more countries as a stable coin reduces the cost of shifting from the local currency to something denominated in dollars or, say, euros. Hmm. Okay, yeah. And so I have, I've heard these, these points sort of mentioned before, but, but you sort of always see central bankers sort of quickly jump to, to highlight and the, the financial stability implications um, of stable coins uh, are you the same do you do you sort of share these share these concerns uh, yes there are a variety of other issues uh, including a number related to uh, financial stability uh, I'll highlight one that I've been giving a little bit of thought to uh, Suppose a stable coin is backed by financial assets denominated in one or more sovereign currencies. Mm-hmm. For example, let's assume it's a stable coin denominated in U.S. dollars that holds U.S. dollar denominated assets. In some respects, the stable coin would be similar to money market mutual funds that also hold portfolios denominated in U.S. dollar assets. These money funds have long been required by law to hold only short-term high-quality assets. However, that did not prevent money funds from being a major part of the financial crisis in 2008. What happened then was that the failure of Lehman Brothers resulted in the money fund reserve primary fund taking significant losses, which had passed through to the fund's shareholders. Now, the shareholders in this were not expecting to take any losses. They thought it was going to maintain par value, uh, one share equals one dollar. 
And when they hit the losses hit, they started running on reserve primary fund and then other money funds that held bank deposits and commercial paper similar to reserve primary. The resulting collapse of the commercial paper market threatened to make the crisis unimaginably worse by causing widespread illiquidity among some of the biggest firms in the world. The threat ultimately forced large-scale coordinated intervention by the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve. Okay, so you're saying, I guess, that stable coins could could cause a, a repeat of the, the 2008 crisis with, um, with money funds. I guess surely there's some sort of some sort of way central banks can can mitigate against this. You're right, William. Um, It could. uh, Maybe the odds of that happening are low, but it could. Um, This would happen if a stable coin uh, invested in assets that took a loss. Mm. Uh, And you're right, there are various ways of mitigating this risk. However, if we want to completely eliminate the possibility of a run on a stable coin, the only asset it could hold with no credit risk, no interest rate risk, and no liquidity risk is reserves in the central bank. So should stable coins be allowed to hold reserves? If yes, and we're really worried about it, should stable coins be required to invest their entire portfolio in central bank reserves? And if we're going to do this, should all stable coins be allowed to or even required to hold reserves, or should only those meeting certain criteria? And finally, if a central bank is going to allow or require stable coins to hold reserves, shouldn't that central bank consider doing away with the middleman and simply issue central bank digital currency? I'd mm. love to give my mm-hmm. answers to these many questions, but I'm not sure I have a good enough understanding of the issues to have a strong opinion mm-hmm. on all of them. Yeah, no, there's, there, yeah, there's some big questions, and I guess for for, for central banks, that is... That is one. That is a is a is a popular question right now. Is who who should have access to to central bank um, reserve accounts? Um, I know the Bank of England's just opened up their their reserve account to to non banks. Does does this stable coin is that a bit of a stretch too far? Or, or 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 yeah, it's a it's a big question and and an interesting question. Um, we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, sort of the the role of of dollars as a reserve currency but i guess i'd be interested to to hear your insight on how stable coins sort of chime with um the role of of the dollar as a as a global reserve currency could could stable coin sort of temper some of the risks um that are often sort of associated with uh dollar domination in in global reserves um yeah i'd be interested to to hear your thoughts well, the outsized role of the U.S. dollar does raise a host of issues. I wouldn't limit the discussion to just the dollar as a reserve currency. Mm-hmm. I would also include its role as the international medium of exchange and as the denomination in which a substantial fraction of loans are being made where neither the party is based in the U.S. Now, the dominance of one currency facilitates trade and investment by lowering transactions costs, but it also creates some potential issues, as you suggest. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of how this could change with a stable coin, one has to start with the question of what the coin is being held stable against and how it is maintaining that stability. The U.S. dollar could become even more dominant if a stable coin is being held stable against the U.S. dollar and is backed by assets denominated in the U.S. dollar. Indeed, such a development could lead to more economies becoming de facto dollarized. Mm. Of course, it is possible 
that a globally important stable coin could be developed that could be stabilized against another currency. Such a development could lead to a decline in the use of the U.S. dollar. However, given the U.S. dollar's current outsized role and the failure of a strong competitor to emerge, one has to ask what would change in the foreseeable future to give rise of, to a globally important stable coin that is not based on the dollar. Mm. But I guess with with Libra, it's also it also includes the the euro, the Japanese yen, the the British pound, and and the Singapore dollar. To to what I understand, yeah. How how could that play? Obviously, with with the with sort of having all those all those reserve currencies in in this this stable coin. So I've heard that along with a Libra based on a basket of currencies, they're considering and likely to do a Libra based on individual currencies. So we'll have to see how that works out. But for the version based on a basket of currencies, the news reports I've seen suggest the U.S. dollar will only be 50% of the basket of currencies uh, that Libra is tracking. Whether Libra will ultimately be issued in this form remains to be seen. But let's focus on the current proposal. Let's assume that Libra is a commercial success in the sense of becoming a significant part of the global financial system. So getting to your question, a very crude way of answering it would be to ask what proportion of Libra is being held and used in the U.S. If it's more than the U.S. dollar's weight in the basket of 50%, then one could make the case Libra is reducing the dollar's dominance. Indeed, Libra would be inducing the U.S. market to rely more on foreign currencies. However, suppose only 10% of Libra is being used in the U.S., but the U.S. dollar has a weight of 50%. Arguably, that would imply that Libra is making the U.S. dollar, and especially U.S. dollar-denominated assets, more important. Okay, yeah, that's that's actually really... I haven't thought about it like that before. Um, I guess we'll just have to see how have to see how they, they come out with it. The, the plans seem to be a bit of a moving target, so um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to see what, what Facebook ends up ends up doing. Um, so I also wanted to to get into a couple of the 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 center's sort of recent research posts, um, which I thought were were particularly interesting. Um, but I guess just to to take a step back for any listeners who who might not know where to to find your work, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Larry. Um, the center puts out an almost monthly blog um, in a section of the the Atlanta Fed's website um, called Notes from the Vault. Um, these appear to be sort of intended for people who are financially sophisticated, uh, but not necessarily um, a whiz with with complicated mathematical statistical models and and a lot of sort of heavy um, academic um, text. Is that is that about right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, we also publish our market probability tractor, which provides estimates of the distribution of market expectations of the federal funds rate uh, at various future dates. Okay. Uh, but that's another. But that's a discussion for another day. Okay, sure. Um, okay, great. And yeah, so some of the examples um, that I saw, there's some some really good stuff. So one of them was about regulating bank incentive. Um, uh, compensation, the use of cash. Um, there's another interesting one on the the comparison of user friendliness of of cryptocurrencies versus versus banks. But but one stood out to me um, the most, and it involved the current expected credit loss requirements, or CECL, um, as it's often called. Um, these are, from what I understand, 
forthcoming regulatory changes which may soon adjust the way US lenders uh, measure the expected losses uh, of their loans. Um, and I understand that Europe um, and some other jurisdictions have already adopted a version of this um, called the International Financial Reporting Standards. Um, but the US is still in the process of um, adopting CISO. And I believe I'm also right in saying that it's pushed back um, from the coming year, pushed back from implementing these in the coming year for, for smaller US banks um, to, to 2023 instead. Is that is that right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, the International Financial Reporting Standards, uh, IFRS 9, uh, has the uh, standards that are being used in Europe. And the U.S. standards, uh, some of them are being pushed back for uh, smaller institutions, including smaller U.S. banks. Okay, sure. And I guess sort of a, a step back, what exactly are the standards and, and sort of where have they, where have they come from? And, and also, I guess, what's the difference between... Europe's and and the ones um, in the U.S. So the U.S. financial accounting standards are set by a uh, U.S. domestic body, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, uh, which is different from uh, the International Financial uh, Standards Board. Um, They had both, both standards had been operating under what was called the incurred loss model which said a bank could not provision for credit losses until a loss became probable. That meant that so long as the probability alone would go bad, remain below 50%, and I've seen arguments that it was even in practice a much higher percentage than that in the U.S., that no loss could be recorded. What the new accounting standards say is that losses should be recorded at an earlier stage. The U.S. adopted the more extreme rule requiring provisions for all expected losses. Since all loans have at least some small chance of a credit loss, this meant that provisions were essentially needed from the time the loan was booked. The International Accounting Standards Board objected to these so-called day one provisions. As a result, uh, IFRS 9 does not require loss provisions until the credit risk of an asset has significantly increased. Okay. So... As we were talking about, the U.S. did delay it for the smaller banks, but the U.S. version of CECL took effect as of this January 1 for large reporting companies, which includes all of the important internationally active banks headquartered in the U.S. The, however, the effective date was moved back to January 2023 for smaller public companies and private companies. Uh, the deal was the largest U.S. banks had already had to develop sophisticated systems for estimating credit losses in order to comply with the stress tests. However, many smaller banks have considerable work to do on estimating credit losses before they could implement CECL. Some of these smaller banks have also said they plan on using the delay to put additional political pressure on the accounting authorities to revise or repeal CECL. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I saw something saw something interesting um, that the central banking recently covered. It was... Um, Martin Taylor, who's a, an external member of the, the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee, um, we, we reported that he, he recently expressed concern that the, the, the standards over um, in the UK could, could cause problems if the, the bank foresees the loss too late or, or comes under too much um, pressure from its, from its supervisors um, to overestimate um, the required provisions. Is this something... 
um, that's a concern in, in the US. Um, and I guess one of the concerns he's, he's raising is that these strict rules um, for credit loss accounting could sort of worsen a future crisis because they're they're pro cyclic pro they're inherently pro cyclical and and um, yeah I'd be wondering if uh, or I'd I'd be interested to to hear your insight on that. So my first thought is is we're doing this for a reason. The reported loan losses were not credible during the global financial crisis. Almost everyone agrees that the provisions were too little too late uh, during the crisis, and as a result, banks' loan loss provisions lost credibility in the marketplace. So their capital ratios, as reported to the supervisors, remained flat, but their market value capital ratios plunged. The U.S. needed to run the supervisory capital assessment program in early 2009 to reestablish some credibility and provide a basis for banks to start returning to normal operations these stress tests were arguably not very stressful given the economic forecasts of early 2009, which were pretty bad. But what they did do is force banks to estimate their likely losses over a period of sustained economic weakness, no pretending that the economy would soon return to the pre-crisis boom. The resulting loss estimates provided some parameters around the magnitudes of the actual losses and seem to have been pretty well received by the markets. So could stricter capital standards produce overestimates of expected losses? Obviously, the answer is yes. The loan loss allowance is necessarily an estimate that's sometimes going to be too high and sometimes going to be too low. Uh, If banks are concerned that loss estimates could suddenly jump and possibly end up too high, there's a simple solution. They should hold sufficient capital to be able to survive a severe but plausible downturn. One additional point I would like to make about the change in accounting standards, it isn't just bankers that are going to have to adjust their mindset. The old incurred loss model also gave bank supervisors an excuse for putting off dealing with emerging problems in the hopes that conditions would turn around. That excuse won't be there the next time credit losses spike up. Right, yeah, and, and which might not be too far away, sort of given the, the potential disruption from, from the coronavirus. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to to see when these when these sort of fully come in and 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 how much it might change uh, sort of the the economic cycles and 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 how much it it might influence those. Yeah, it'll be something very interesting to follow. Um, I guess there was a, there was just another another post from your from your research um, from the the notes from the vault um, that I was interested. in. I see that. It was also a topic dis- discussed in your 2019 financial markets conference, um, which is obviously data, um, or the topic was data. Um, obviously, people have said that, that data is the new oil, sort of in reference to its potentially great economic value. Um, on the other hand, sort of concerns about the, the loss of privacy and, and the adoption of the European GDPR, and, and more recently in, in the US, the California Consumer Privacy Act. I guess what were your some of some of your takeaways from from the the data topic in in the conference last year? I'd be sort of interested to 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 hear what was what was being said. Well, we had some very thoughtful people talk about the uh, state of understanding of data issues in economics and society, uh, and their presentations at the 2019 Atlanta Fed's Financial Markets Conference uh, are available at our website. 
Uh, as someone who cares about public policy, I left in a bit of a concerned state. On the one hand, advances in obtaining, storing, and analyzing data are racing ahead. Uh, the actions taken or not taken now could have profound consequences for good and bad in the future. Mm. On the other hand, I'm not sure that we even know the full set of relevant consequences of data policy, let alone understand how different regulations will make some consequences more or less likely. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, I guess, what were some of the, the highlights? Why, why did you come away so, so concerned, I guess? Well, let me talk about uh, what three or four of the uh, participants at the conference had to say. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, so Professor Christopher Tonetti from Stanford observed that most goods are rival goods. For example, if I'm driving a car, you cannot be driving that same car. Right. But, but data is different. I can be using a data set without necessarily impairing your ability to use the same data. So if data is a, a valuable input into improving production, society is arguably better off with data widely distributed. Subject to one important caveat. How much data is produced will depend upon the ability of those gathering the data to profit from their efforts. Then we also had Professor Alessandro Acquiste from Carnegie Mellon uh, reviewing the uh, information literature uh, in economics. And he argued that that literature has found examples where more data sharing increases social welfare and other cases where it decreases it. He also emphasizes that the interests of different stakeholders are often not well aligned, and whether and how we protect data is definitely going to produce some winners and losers. Finally, he observed that the vast majority of economic studies of privacy take a very narrow definition of privacy and use clearly defined measures of the outcome. These studies do not include many of the less tangible, non-economic implications of data protection versus data sharing, so they're rather, in some respects, limited. Yeah, right. Uh, Douglas Elliott, a uh, partner at Oliver Wyman, focused on data rights in finance, but he, too, found that the issues could be analyzed in a variety of different frameworks and that the choice of the framework could have substantial impacts on the conclusion one reaches. Finally, there is some discussion of efforts to make the data more available, but to do so in a way that preserves individual confidentiality. John Abowd, the chief scientist at the U.S. Census Bureau, emphasized that privacy is not a binary choice. With, that is, it's not the case that either the data is all made public or it's all kept in completely confidential. There are ways of uh, preserving some level of privacy while making it available. For example, small errors could be deliberately introduced into the data that would only slightly reduce the accuracy of the overall results, but would substantially reduce the ability of data users to infer information about any one individual. Right, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, I guess a wide, a wide range of, of insights there from, from, from a number of different different academics yeah that that sounds really interesting um i know that that data is a, a a huge topic for for central banks now and and um it's it's becoming as you said it's becoming even more important so um yeah and and i understand that you have um another conference scheduled for for this year is is that still going ahead and i guess will data also feature in, in that as well uh, as of this moment, it's still going on, obviously, with the uh, developments uh, with 
COVID-19. All of our plans are subject to uh, being changed. But as of this moment, it is still scheduled. Um, It's going to be held on Amelia Island in May. What sort of of topics are you going to be looking into? Well, uh, our main four topics, uh, subjects of our policy panels are, do the current capital requirements provide the right buffer? That's number one. A second one is, is the financial system's backbone, the U.S. dollar, also a transmitter of stress? Interesting. A third panel is, is digital currency a valuable innovation or a cause of future cross-signals? And finally, uh, another topic of considerable interest, does monetary policy still have the juice to keep the economy from dimming? Mm, Good title. (laughs) Uh, Our confirmed keynote speakers include Vice Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Richard Clarida, Professor Larry Summers, and the Head of the Federal Housing Finance Administration, Mark Calabria. We are also going to host an annual academic conference with the Center for the Economic Analysis of Risk at Georgia State University in the fall. We're in the early stages of planning for that, um, which will be held on October 29th and 30th. If there are any researchers in your audience and they're interested in learning more, I would very much encourage them to uh, email me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are. Um... Yeah, well, well, any researchers out there, you heard the man. Um, if 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 any of these conferences um, sound sound of interest, then then please get in touch with Larry. Um, we're in for, in for some fascinating discussions, I think. Um, and and yeah, looking forward to tuning in. Well, that's that's all we have time for today. Um, it's been a pleasure, Larry. Um, thank you very much for for sharing your insight and and the work your department's been up to. It's um it's an interesting time and and uh, a very fast moving time with with stable coins, um potentially um, disrupting and or or even enhancing society and and obviously the coronavirus um causing causing disruption as well. So um yeah we've we've discussed some some important topics and and it'll be interested to see how these these play out. Thank you very much for having me, William. You're very welcome. Thank you very much.